0: This is Writer's Latitude, a podcast about writers, their work, and the things they care about. I'm your host, Joe Samuel Starnes. I was very fortunate earlier this fall to have the opportunity to spend some time talking with Jonathan Miles, whose latest novel, Anatomy of a Miracle, was selected as a town book for Collingswood, New Jersey by the annual Collingswood Book Festival. This discussion recorded at the festival explores the novel, the intersection of fiction and nonfiction among other topics, as well as Miles' close friendship with Larry Brown, a favorite writer of mine who often pops up on this podcast. So we'll go to that recording now, and it was a beautiful, if you want to picture the scene, a crisp fall day on Collingswood on Haddon Avenue uh, under the sun on an October afternoon. It was a great time. So I hope you enjoy listening to this discussion. All right, I'm Joe Samuel Starnes and uh, very excited to be the moderator here with uh, Jonathan Miles. So Jonathan, thanks for coming down here today.
1: Thank you all for having me, thank you.
0: Jonathan's uh, the author of Anatomy of a Miracle, which is this year's town book, uh, which was selected by the festival. I wanna give a little bit of bio, bio of him. Uh, he was born in Cleveland, Ohio in 1971 and raised in Arizona, but he left home in his teens and infatuated with the blues and intent on a life in music, where he landed in Oxford, Mississippi which is a town which has had a few other great writers uh, Couple, to yeah. call home. And uh, he landed in 1989, I guess, to attend the University of Mississippi?
1: Sort of. Sort of, yeah, okay. Yeah. Sort of attend.
0: Yeah. And uh, there he developed a close friendship with the writer Larry Brown, who we're going to talk about a little bit later uh, and talk about this book I'm holding in my hand, Tiny Love. But we'll get to that. Uh, He left Mississippi after 12 years to go to New York in 2001, where he served as a contributing editor for a number of publications, Men's Journal, Details, Field and Stream. He wrote for GQ, The New York Times, and among many others. Uh, He now lives uh, not too far north of here in Huntington County, New Jersey, and he saw the publication of his first novel, uh, Dear American Airlines, in 2008. The second novel, What Not, was published in 2013 and both were New York Times notable books and both were named as the best book of the year by the Wall Street Journal. But that's not why he's here today. He's here today to talk about uh, Anatomy of a Miracle, which was published last year. Um, It was a subject of a great book discussion uh, in the library earlier this week, Um, but the Collingswood Book Festival wasn't the the only folks impressed with it. It was chosen by Sarah Jessica Parker. It's the American Libraries Association Book Club uh, selection in March 2018. And I mentioned earlier, it's being developed into a feature film from Paramount. So the festival's in good company, and we're lucky to have uh, Johnny here today. I've got some questions we're going to run through, and then we'll have plenty of time for questions for the audience as well. So um, one overview of this novel describes it this way. It's a profound new novel about a paralyzed young man's unexplainable recovery, a stunning exploration of faith, science, mystery, and the meaning of life. And another, and actually this is the paperback uh, on the back book jacket, it's the true, with an asterisk, true story of a paralyzed veteran, a Mississippi convenience store, a Vatican investigation, and the spectacular perils of grace. So beyond that, those descriptions, Johnny, how would you, how do you tell, describe this book to people, and maybe where did the original idea, where did this novel come from?
1: Um. thank you all for being here let me start out with that I really appreciate it and I love coming to this town um, the latter description that, uh, that you just read is actually um, my subtitle uh, for the book uh, like most 18th century novels being published today it has a long and winding subtitle which my publisher in the hardback uh, was so thrilled with that they put it in I'll show you the most obvious place that they could that's That's what people think of subtitles these days. But um, this novel originated in a way that I think a lot of novels do, at least for me, with a what-if question. What if something happened in our current climb where, you know, science, we we feel that science has mapped the human genome, that science has mapped um, so much. What if if something happened, an event occurred that simply defied all explanation that nobody uh, could point to an explanation for? And that event, as it kept fermenting in my imagination, was a uh, a young man paralyzed while serving in Afghanistan who one day outside a convenience store in a tumble-down uh, neighborhood in Biloxi, Mississippi, uh, stands out of his wheelchair and walks, makes a spontaneous recovery. So the novel uh, follows the aftermath of this recovery and its effects on on this young man, of course, and his his sister, who he lives with, um, his very confounded physician, uh, the owners of the convenience store, who find themselves in possession of a latter-day lords, albeit one that sells beer and smokes and and beef jerky and automotive air fresheners. (laughs) And then the the world at large, as various factions um, sort of swoop in to claim this event, according to their own worldviews. And then as the details begin twisting about what actually happened, uh, start changing their views uh, on what happened. And that's that's what the novel tracks.
0: Where did you know, is there a moment you got this idea or is this something that you'd thought about for years? Where did the original motivation to explore that come from? So
1: I never know where fiction ideas come from. You know, sometimes when I'm talking an event like this, I feel like a complete fraud in the sense that The back of the brain does all the work and the front of the brain, this conscious part takes all the credit. Um, But it it all happens somewhere in the subconscious. Um, You know, I can always kind of reverse engineer, you know, an explanation for everything I do. And yet it does seem, you know, this is why they, they, they invented the idea of the muse or all these other spiritual guides that, you know, with art. Um, but it's just that subconscious working away okay. it's just that dream so
0: okay. Well, yeah. this is a novel that's populated and Johnny talked about some of them, a large cast of really fascinating well-drawn characters And uh, I encourage you those you haven't read it to do so because there's no way that we can cover all these characters in 50 minutes e- each character we could have a 50 minute you could teach a course on this class and take up a character a week and it would be a lot of fun to do that um, but I want to focus on the one character. Who would would be the central character is Cameron Harris, who's the paralyzed vet, who um, is the central character of this novel. Who is I'm going to use finger quotes here, even though I don't like to do that. Miraculously cured, and we'll discuss that. But before I te- you know ask Johnny to tell us a little bit about him, I want him to read a paragraph on page 16 of the book, which is the moment where. Prior to the I'll set it up. He, you know Cameron is in his wheelchair going to the convenience store He has a lot of sort of strange physical sensations He doesn't quite understand and then he stands for the first time in four years, and he's starting to walk And he's wondering if he's dreaming or not
1: So he sees he sees his his feet on the his own red nikes on the asphalt and uh, he assumes he's dreaming This he is which meant he was asleep in dreaming Except that he wasn't he was awake and he was standing. And what's more, he was walking. He watched his left foot rise and then descend back to the asphalt a few inches ahead of its former position. That was walking, yes, that was its very definition. He matched that step with his right foot. By now he was consciously controlling his feet, his heart flopping in his chest like a mullet in a bucket. Cameron Harris, whose spine had been severed in Afghanistan, who'd been assured and reassured by brigades of medical authorities that he would never walk again, was walking slowly but steadily across the Busybee parking lot, his chest so frenzied with fear and disbelief and incipient exultation that he felt himself gasping for oxygen.
0: Okay. Thanks for reading, Johnny. I mean, that that's like a big moment in the beginning of the book that sets the course of uh, the novel in action. And it's a small reading, but I wanted you to hear a little bit of it because it's just a example of the great writing that's throughout this novel. And as a writer myself, I read his heart flopping in his chest like a mullet in a bucket. And I'm like, damn, I wish I had written that one. That's uh, jealous of that one. That was fantastic. And, you know, throughout the book, it's just, you know, uh, beautifully written. Um, So, but tell us a little bit about Cameron Harris and the main character and what he goes through and how maybe you know he if you can how he came to you or what you know whatever you'd like to tell us about him.
1: Yeah, so Cameron Harris, um, you know, central to this, he is the the recipient of this uh, recovery we call it uh, recipient. Um, I sort of began drawing Cameron in very simple strokes um, by design. You know, I set him up not as a stereotype so much, but as maybe a daguerreotype, in the sense that I drew him with these lines that I would let other people fill in with their own preconceptions and ideas. He is a uh, 24-year-old, um, in this moment, uh, a former uh, football standout, Biloxi High School in Biloxi, Mississippi. Worked construction after uh, high school, uh, drifted into the army, was deployed to Afghanistan, and while uh, serving there. His staff sergeant stepped on and triggered a old Russian landmine, um, which uh, shrapnel from which severed Cameron's spine. It's one of the uh, physicians at uh, in Germany who treated him said, "You were a casualty of a, of a war you weren't even fighting in." Um, but as the story unfolds, so does Cameron. Um, and he is a far more complex um, human being, like we all are, um, than he originally appears. And you know, it's a little difficult to talk about this book. Has um, spoiler. There's a spoiler potential for this book, so I have to be sort of uh, careful navigating around because I don't want to sort of ruin some of the, um, you know, some of the surprises. But um, but let's just say that Cameron. Uh, one of the things I want to do with Cameron is to not so much concentrate on his physical movement although that's the trigger for this but the interior movement that he goes through in the course of this um that's what i found most interesting about him it's you know he has to move into a position of of confronting himself confronting his past and confronting really everything that led to his injury and its aftermath
0: it's interesting uh, talking about the soviet landmine because there's also an old soviet tank that sort of plays a role this shadow of the soviet union sort of hangs over the uh the book in a way i haven't thought of yeah
1: yeah uh that's not conscious that's again the subconscious working of my soviet subconscious clearly um i remember being asked my first novel uh an interviewer in in canada said i noticed that all the musical references are canadian why is that (laughs) i hadn't realized that either but that's you know Sometimes these things happen. That we, One
0: of those accidents of writing yeah, that, uh, right, that works right. out. Um, you know, the primary question for the characters in this novel, and especially Cameron, the thing they're concerned with is whether or not Cameron's recovery was an act of God or not. I mean, is it a bona fide miracle or can it be explained without God, through, maybe through science? And it seems to me that this central question this novel raises is is, is there a God in the world? Is there a God who's active in the world or can everything be explained by science and theory? Um, I wonder if you think that's like an accurate reading and what you feel about that interpretation? Um, yes, and no
1: um, Yes, in the sense that that Divide is the conflict that drives so much of the story um, that conflict between um, Characters like Cameron's physician Dr. Uh, Janice Laura Marquavis, um, you know, adhering, uh, believing that this is a medical anomaly that can be explained. Maybe she doesn't have the explanation immediately, but that can be explained by science. And then others, um, like the representative from um, the Vatican, who was sent to investigate it as a miracle, as a clear case of divine intercession. And so this conflict plays out. But I was less interested in that divide um, than really about why that divide exists, which is to say what we do when we are confronted with mystery, right? When we are confronted with something inexplicable and, you know, what we tend to do and what we really can't help but do is to rely on our own worldviews, our own conceptions of how the world works in order to make sense of the senseless. Right, and and this is where and this is where story enters because stories are the basic units of consciousness. This is how we we confront everything in life through stories. That's why even our dreams have a narrative element, right? Um, so stories are are what our brains are wired for, and so all of the people in this book create their own stories to explain what happened to Cameron. Cameron included, right? Um, And so that's really what I I wanted to explore, that sense of these narratives that we all
0: create with the information that we
1: receive. Um,
0: And I I don't want to lead you with that. This is the only thing the book deals with. I mean, there's convenience store culture, there's reality television, social media. Uh, how social media works is uh, there's a lot. You know, it's a, that's the, maybe the big umbrella, but there are a lot of cool stories and moments in this novel that give you a lot to think and talk about.
1: It's the uh, the first novel I've ever written that has emojis, so that's <laughs> something.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, I um, I noted earlier that the actually the subtitle of the book has an asterisk on the word true. Hmm. This is a true story with an asterisk on true. Uh, explain that asterisk to us so some novels begin
1: with you know a, a vision a character and others with a voice. This novel was the former and so I had to go casting about for a voice and how to tell this story. Uh, I knew I wanted to sort of uh, map all the ripples. That an event like this would cause. So, first person, you know, the I voice seemed too limited to me. Um, Third person omniscient voice, you know, he went there. He's, it's always struck me as a very godlike voice. And um, and for a novel in which characters are are struggling with the uh, idea of the divine, it seemed, uh, you know, it seemed a little wonky, little little wobbly for me to be doing that. Because as an author, you always feel like you know you are the god, and and you know so. If they're asking who it is, you're kind of at the screen guy. That's just me. Um, so I, I opted for a, a curveball, and the idea was to tell this story in the guise of narrative nonfiction or journalism, and you know to to, to write this story the way somebody like a, a Michael Lewis or um, would write it if this had actually happened, and if these you know, and. So something funny happened along the way. This I started writing this in 2014, and my conception of that voice was a very trustworthy and authoritative voice. You know, to to be describing the sort of spectacular and and perhaps uh, you know events that perhaps would 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 induce some skepticism. But while I was writing this, there was a seismic change that happened underneath the my my desk, my desk chair, in that this voice that I had. Uh, conceived of, you know, deployed as the kind of authoritative, trustworthy voice, which we'll call news for short, got transformed in the public imagination into the most untrustworthy voice, which we'll call fake news for short. (laughs) This book is the, (laughs) it's, this book is actually fake news. (laughs) It is, you know, it is, it is fiction disguised as non-fiction. And, uh, but, I will say that this curveball... Is not new necessarily. The English novel began with this idea. This is how the the first. I mean, we, we forget that Robinson Crusoe, one of the earliest English novels, was written as poker faced. You know, um, it was it was supposed to be accepted as as fact. Uh, Samuel Richardson, with uh, you know, talked about the air of genuineness in in Pamela, which is widely considered the first sort of realist fiction. In fact, Richardson. Um, you know, after Pamela was published, became a hit in London, um, somebody wrote a, a kind of knockoff book that said, no, no, we have the real Pamela diaries. And Richardson couldn't respond to that because by doing so, he would have to admit that he'd made up the whole thing in the beginning. <laughs> so that's that's a hard trick to begin with. But the, the English novel sort of arose out of this. And there's a critic named Catherine Gallagher who says, you know, the, the origins of the, uh, the English novel were in journalism uh, scandal um, and religious and political controversy. So... You know, what I tried to do um, was kind of revivify that old idea of the novel.
0: So you're tapping into a very old tradition. Very right? old tradition, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Of, of pulling the wool over the eyes of the readers. Yeah. Well, I like
0: the, the New York Times review talked about it. It's like watching a novel impersonate a work of journalism impersonating a novel. And uh, it's kind of you're taking the the creative nonfiction it's voice. A, a little Russian nesting and doll and of truth. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so uh, that's, uh, and then, you know, I mean I think Frankenstein was a series of letters yeah so and your first novel was all a letter uh, dear American Airlines so you've played uh, around with the voice a lot in your yes, writing
1: yeah
0: um, in the town book discussion the other night we had about 30 35 40 people about half high school students who'd all read the novel and we talked about narrative style and I asked for a show of hands of who thought this was a true story at some point during their reading and by true here, I mean nonfiction. And about half the group raised their hands. And some said, well, th- they figured out it was a fiction. Others said they thought it was a true story. And others were, were still sure. They were looking to their high school teacher for, uh, for guidance on that. So I wonder if it's something. I and mean, even though it has in the front of the book, you know, a disclaimer that this is a work of fiction. Do you worry about or think that maybe some readers are going to take this f- Like people do believe fake news, uh, Mm -hmm. depending on what we describe, uh, describe it, that people are going to believe this is a true story. So when
1: I finished writing it uh, and with that in mind, it almost felt like when you're playing chess and you're making a move and you're just about to take your hand off and you go, I don't know if that's a good move. So there was there was that feeling. Um, But I respond to that. Misconception with, and I'll just be honest here, with a mixture of glee and guilt. Right? <laughs>
2: um,
1: glee because you know fiction is 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 the is the lie that tells the greater truth, and so you know when you can get anybody to believe your lie, well, that's that's a, you know that's a good thing. Um, however, uh, the the guilt is. Um, you know, well, let me just say that, that part of the reason in doing that, part of, I mean, this is by design. And I wanted the reader to feel that sense of instability that Cameron feels. You know, when Cameron is looking down at his legs, which are newly, you know, restored and saying, is this real? I wanted that same question to be running through the reader's mind Is this real? You know, um, sometimes that might have gone too far. <laughs> Uh, for some readers, um, I realized that I, there were a few sacred uh, lines I may have crossed, um, but even my own father-in-law, who lives in Biloxi, Mississippi, and helped me you know, a couple years with the research after he finished it and read the acknowledgments, in which I, I thank the characters, as you would in a nonfiction book. He said, wait, is Cameron real? He said, oh, God. <laughs> realized I was in trouble then. I had a, uh, There's, a, there's a, a novelist in this who makes a cameo appearance in this. Uh, in this novel, and uh, talk about his, his cult classic from the 1970s. And, I, and on the early book tour, I met a young bookseller from San Francisco, and he said, man, I have been looking at every database. There is. <laughs> I cannot find Winston Lorimar's book anywhere. And I felt so ashamed because I had to tell him it's because I made it up. Um, but all that said, um, Glee and Guilt. Right. Well, um, I think you know. I mean, this is to play with the idea of what academics would call referentiality. Right? Is you know, that that kind of dizzy, kind of half drunk feeling of is this, is this a universe that I live in, or is this another one? I wanted those, the streams to cross.
0: Well, I think the the feeling of glee should be much stronger because one they. I'm Catholic. They, I, the guilt has to go re- in everything. Read, read your yeah. story. You know, and they were so into it, it, it came alive. I mean, that's, that's like the goal of a writer is you want people to read this and exist in that world and, and believe it. Uh, but it says it's a novel. It says, it, you know, you've got the disclaimer in the front. Yeah. So, you know, people should know. But it's so well done that it makes makes readers – and I at one point I thought, you know, was this based on a real – I mean, was there any sort of Cameron Harris-type story that you saw? So there actually
1: is a lot of fact in here. I mean, the, the, the process that I, I, I write about with the Vatican right. – um, you know the, the Catholic Church is the only major religion who uh, every major religion recognizes miracles to some extent but the Catholic Church is the only one um, that purports to investigate and 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 validate them and there is this in- incredible incredibly rigorous process that has been in in effect for hundreds of years and so as that is you know re- relayed in the book that's actually, so there is it's like a jello salad of fact and fiction
0: <laughs> yeah what's well, funny you think about you do i read a lot of nonfiction. and i think is this really true did it really happen this way mm-hmm. and then you, now we're reading fiction and go going this is this actually true mm-hmm. so you know you, they sort of intersect and overlap a little bit and that is ways. and
1: that is part of what i wanted to get out with this novel in that sense that especially now we are inundated with so much information you know no 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 human being throughout our entire history of our species has ha, had to deal with this daily barrage of information. And it's too much. Our, our, our brains aren't equipped to filter this much information coming. So we have to filter it some way. So how do we do that? And that goes back to what I was talking about of our worldviews. You know, we tend to latch on to what we want to believe based on... And it's not insidious. I don't mean in that way. But we tend to we tend to want to accept the information that adheres, that aligns with the way that we see the world and reject the information that doesn't align with how we see the world. And when you have that much coming, your brain is working that much harder to try to filter that. And, and this is, you know, again, this is what the, the, the people in this book deal with. You know, it, was this a, a divine miracle? Is this God stepping in, you know, to lift this man from his wheelchair? Um, or, you know, was this uh, a screw up by the VA physicians? Or was it a hoax? And that becomes, you know, um, and in each the seeds of each of those theories are what people want to believe, what they what they crave to be the truth. And then when the story turns, a lot of those people have to revise that because they're going to stay with the ideology that, you know.
0: Yeah, and the social media certainly exacerbates this, you know. Yes. Information yeah. and misinformation. Yeah, and that's part of belief. the, the yeah. you know the information that's, that's just
1: that's flooding that's us. Yeah. And I
0: really like the part where uh, the sister asked if somebody likes this post, does it count as a prayer? <laughs> right. <Yeah>. Right, because <laughs> the, 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 the likes count as prayers.
1: Yeah, because the Vatican requires you know evidence of, of prayer uh, to an intercessor to a, to a saint uh, for a miracle, and there was a woman who, after cameras injured. Um, you know, put out a prayer call on Facebook, and it got, I think, 151 likes. And so, Cameron's sister said to the Vatican investigator, "Does that count as, you know, does that count as likes?" And so said, "Well, it's, it's a very current question. I'm not sure yeah. I can answer."
0: Um, I mentioned Larry Brown earlier. We're going to come back and talk to him. But there's another writer, uh, late great Mississippi writer, is Barry Hannah, who I know you knew well, living in Oxford. And I read an interview with Barry one time where he said he writes fiction to explore the last basic desperate questions of the human soul. Sort of a dramatic uh, answer, Barry, Barry had a lot of flair, and uh, yeah, I'm paraphrasing him there, but I wonder, like, wh- why do you write fiction?
1: You know, um, I can imagine Barry saying that, and he would have had a wink uh, as he said it, although he would have been 100% earnest at the same time. That was Barry. Um, I, uh, <laughs> Why do I write? Um, Thomas Mungoyan said, you know, he would do any act of art to keep his dogs in kibble. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's always part of it. Um, maybe two answers on that. Um, one is that I I write fiction to make sense of the world. I don't understand people until I have have sort of run them through run them through fiction to understand how people think. I mean, fiction, reading fiction is always at its essence an act of empathy, right? Because you are forced, and it's the only art form that can do this, you're forced to get into another human being's consciousness. And for me, as a writer, that's how I understand what happens in life, um, is to inhabit another person and put on you know, their eyes to, to wear somebody else's eyes and ears and senses and see what the world looks like to somebody else, and that's what that's what fiction supplies as as a reader and certainly as a writer. Um, and you know, the second reason why I write is because at an early age um, I was struck by the magic of it, my and and have never recovered. Uh, my grandfather died when I was uh, nine years old, um, and he took care of me he was you know he was this man who would take me to art museums and, and make me sit in front of a sculpture until it would talk to me you know for however long <laughs> that took and and when he, he passed away his uh, my grandmother his wife um, shortly after that gave me a book it was called Stone Fox a children's book by uh, John Reynolds Gardner I don't know if anyone's familiar with this but it's the most brutal tearjerker of a book it's about a young boy in Alaska uh, who Enters a dog race um, to get the money to save his own grandfather, uh, his own grandfather's farm, and I won't give, I won't do the whole plot, but 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 I will say that at the very like end of the book, the dog dies, and I'm nine years old, and I'm reading this book, and tears came out of my eyes like from a water pistol. I mean, I, that book drained me, it dehydrated me, it turned me into jerky. And at the same time, I realized that I was crying harder than I'd cried when I heard my grandfather had passed away and at the funeral, because this piece of wood, this, 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 this object, these pages, this ink, was doing something to me. It was uncracking something in me, even at that early age. And it felt like magic. It felt like voodoo. And after that, you know, one response to encountering magic is to try to conjure it yourself. And in some sense, that's what I've been trying to do ever since then, is to try to conjure that magic, to use fiction, to use these imaginary people to get at realities that are almost too real for us to confront head on.
0: Okay. So this novel takes place in the deep south in Biloxi, Mississippi, which is as far south as you can go with Mississippi without running into the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. Uh, you anyway. lived in Mississippi for a dozen years, and um, but you've been up in the New York, New Jersey area for 20, almost 20 years almost now. 20. So why the southern setting and how would this novel be different mm. if it took place in Flemington, New Jersey, right. for example? Yeah. Um, or maybe Cherry Hill or wherever.
1: No, Flemington would be great. Uh, well, my first novel was set in an airport. The second was set in, uh, in the York, New Jersey area. Um, I really came into being a writer in Mississippi. Um, it's the place that I, I consider home um, in, in a strange way. Uh, so I was always going to write about it. When this idea hit... It seemed the natural place to set this. Uh, Flannery O'Connor said that the South was, you know, the last Christ-haunted region of the country and Mississippi would be the most Christ-haunted place. Um, The Gulf Coast, which is where my wife is from, my wife's family is from, um, also has the element of Catholicism because it's almost like this little spur of New Orleans Catholicism. Um, And I knew that I needed to bring in the Catholic aspect um, to have my vatican investigator so all these things you know these these sort of things in the ether converged um to uh to make the natural setting for me for this um that said i i had been fairly uh shy about about writing setting something in mississippi mississippi has hosted more great novelists um than probably any other place and so there are uh so it's a little intimidating um you have to find new rocks to turn over um but how would it differ? I I don't think if it were set in Flemington, I would know these characters as well as I do. It's strange, you know. I I went to Mississippi in my teens and and lived there till I was thirty, and so you uh, I do feel like I have a, a greater understanding, a, a more granular understanding of what those reactions would be than I would have with Flemington. Okay. Although I like Flemington.
0: Do you think, I mean, obviously you knew Larry Brown very well. We're going to talk about him in a minute. And Faulkner, you've read extensively and the other, other Southern writers, but I I guess you probably don't think of yourself as a Southern writer. Would this be considered a Southern novel? Mm. And having spent 12 years in Oxford, Mississippi, you've got a good sense of the Southern fiction. Well, no, yeah.
1: I mean, in order to be a Southern, you have to be born in the South. Right. So, um, yet, southern fiction really was um, my education so um, so I can't be a southern writer this can be a southern novel does that make sense absolutely all right
0: I I was born in Alabama by the way so uh, I grew up in Georgia so Um, yeah so let's talk about Larry Brown Uh, Larry Brown's a writer who and a lot of people in Philadelphia when I think maybe when I first heard of Larry Brown I thought of the basketball coach right so there are two Larry Browns this one had nothing to do with basketball Uh, he was a firefighter in Mississippi (laughs) who in his, what, maybe late 20s, early 30s, he'd always been a big reader, but started to write. And, um, you know, I think he produced maybe 10 or 12 books over the course of his life. He died young, died when he was 53. But um, his novel Father and Son, I think, is, is one of my maybe top... Maybe my favorite novel of all time and some his book on fire about uh, a nonfiction book about being a firefighter. I've loved Larry Brown's work from afar. So I was really excited when uh, we uh, selected Jonathan to come here because Jonathan connected with Larry when he was in Oxford 20, yeah. and knew him very well and has actually edited and written the forward for a book that's coming out next month. This is an advanced copy I'm thrilled to get called Tiny Love, The Complete Stories of Larry Brown. So, um, tell us about Larry Brown and why people should read him and Mm. get this book, but others, other work as well. Well, that was a good introduction
1: to Larry. He, he was a, um, you know, his father was a sharecropper and then a factory worker. Um, he barely graduated, uh, high school in Lafayette County, Mississippi. And at the age of 29, he decided very naively, I would say that if he were here too, um, that maybe the best way to make some extra money would be to start writing fiction. Um, which is funny, because fiction pays dividends the way slot machines do, you know. Lavishly for a few, meagerly for most, and <laughs> meagerly, meagerly for some, and then none at all for, for most. Um, and he endured rejection after rejection after rejection. And taught himself to write over the course of many years, using his wife's typewriter in the back room, staying up all night. And even as these rejections piled in, and he started out trying to write genre fiction, he kept moving the goalposts further for himself to the point that ultimately what he wanted to create as his reading broadened was art, art with a capital A. And and it's what he eventually did. Um, some of, uh, in the most electric writing um, you know to come out of the south and certainly you know he, he sort of sort of willed himself into the vanguard of American realists uh, I met him when I was 20 years old I had just published my first short story in a little local newspaper in Oxford Mississippi and I hadn't read him at the time I was I think 20 years old um, at the time I thought that writers you know the great writers were all dead and that you know that r- r- literature was the province of ghosts so I hadn't but I knew who he was vaguely and he came up to me, I was sitting at a bar, and uh, he came up to me and asked me if I was the one who'd written that short story, and uh, you know, I said, yes sir. And uh, and he asked me if I wanted to go to dinner downstairs at a very fancy restaurant with him and his wife. And um, and at the time, I was mostly interested in, in the dinner, because I had about four dollars to my name, and, <laughs> and all I was eating was the chicken salad at the grocery store. But we went down and we started talking, and he, and he was, uh, you know, he talked about books, writers, the way people talk about, well, basketball, like, you know, he describes scenes, uh, the way people talk about, you know, g- Game Buzzer three-pointers. Um, just had this incredible, uh, just vivacious love uh, for literature. But during this dinner, he was also drinking a lot of Crown and Cokes at this dinner, <laughs> and... uh and during the dinner he, he excused himself and he walked over to this table. And I've been noticing him making these kind of dark glances at this table near us. And uh he he went over to their table and he stood up, he's wearing his cowboy boots, and stood up and got onto their table and started dancing. He started doing the twist on their table in their food. Um and he did that for till the song was over and then came down and and uh sat down and started talking about Flannery O'Connor again and I didn't know exactly what had just happened I just knew that I wanted to hang out with this guy forever (laughs) (laughs) it turned out I learned later that uh, the man sitting at the table was a banker Larry had gone to him for a loan after he published his first novel or his first book of short stories so he could quit the fire department and work full time and I think the banker had very very insultingly rejected the loan Uh, so he got his revenge but, you know, you, you should read Larry for uh, just the pure, I hate to use the word grit, but it's such a good word for it, for just the grit of, of his writing, of his prose. I mean, one of Larry's strengths as a writer was this unsparing empathy. We go back to empathy again, right? But the, his adherence to Samuel Taylor Colwood's idea that, that everyone is, is less bad and less good that, they might, that we might otherwise believe. And for writers and for anyone who's interested in, in how books get made he is an absolute uh, and I know you've written about this um, he is a lodestar because he refused he refused to accept he refused to let his voice be silenced he refused to give up there is a a entry I found from 1982 when he was just starting where he asked himself what do you have going for you you know nothing but desire no talent and a love of the written word and he writes afterwards but the last should be enough to overcome the other two yeah. and that's true what he taught me was that talent and luck really have no you know bearing on artistic success it's 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 love and persistence is what makes an artist yeah you know, I didn't have, my education was Larry riding around Lafayette County, Mississippi, in his truck, what he called low riding. Every, every day about sunset, we'd go ride around, and he would point out places that were in his novels. Um, you know, the scene where such and such happened, or that's, that's where I got the idea for this. And, and I didn't realize at the time, but I was getting this education that, you know, I don't have an MFA, I don't even have a BA, but I would put my education riding around with Larry Brown and that Dodge Ram 50, you know, up against any education.
0: Yeah, I've, I've taught a number of classes, and sometimes I think about these fiction workshops. And I give the, the uh, essay about things to Larry to read, and go, well, he didn't go to college. He's a, uh, you know, living in the world and reading as much as you can is the best education for becoming a writer. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, but yeah. you don't want to tell them after they, that after they paid for the class. Anybody I've taught no, here? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, There's uh, w- one last thing, and then we'll take some questions. At the acknowledgments at the very end of the book Don't skip ahead. Read the whole book. When you get to it, it's uh, Tula, the author's acknowledgments here. Tula, Mississippi, December 2016. Mm. Tell people where Tula is and your experience Uh, and how that's, I think you said that's one of the only true parts of the book.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tula, Tula, Mississippi is uh, uh, an unincorporated hamlet outside of Oxford, Mississippi, about, I don't know, 15 miles out. And it's where Larry Brown grew up. And uh, so when I had to do the editing on this book, I went out there Larry had built himself a writing shack before he died a, uh, a tiny room I think it's eight eight by ten um, on the edge of a catfish pond and uh, so I spent a week there doing the final edits and and final writing um, and it was good because I had you know I had a sort of spiritual guidance Larry's your spirit was you know was in was ambiently in the room uh, the only downside of that was that I picked the one week that mississippi suffered uh, 15 degree temperatures and it's an unheated cabin so that was that was the rough part but uh that's tula
0: no. you got to be tough to write novels yeah especially in 15 degrees all right so we we want to take some questions there's a wireless mic going around somewhere any questions gene
2: we had a book discussion on monday evening and one of the questions that came up was um which character did you like the best mm. and I wondered if you had a favorite character in your book
1: so always the characters that uh, I think and I don't know if you'd agree with this that you you end up sort of being charmed by the most are the ones that change from your original conception of the character the ones that 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 come alive um, for this book I would say that Euclide the Vatican investigator I you know I originally sort of envisioned him You can kind of see it when he first enters enters the novel. The kind of a malevolent presence, you know. He was going to bring some sort of institutional, you know, darkness to this whole thing. And, you know, and as I wrote him, he absolutely charmed me. Like he charmed everyone else in all the other characters in the novel. Um, I just fell head over heels for him. So, um, you know, and and I came to think of him as almost the moral center of the book. Um, But character, you know, characters are are strange, and and it's it's part of one of the the, the, the maddening parts about writing fiction is, you know, and this kind of goes back to, to sort of the God I, metaphor, you know, for, for being a fiction writer. You know, you, you, you create this Eden you've made and you put in your, your Adams and your Eves and your Canes and Abels, and you think you understand it and then you give them free will and then they start disobeying you. And they start doing these things that you didn't intend for them to do and that can be very maddening and frightening because you you're just your your novel is going off the rails you know, that's also the only time it feels like magic that's the only fun time is when they come alive and they start disobeying you and they start talking back um that's the best part that's the voodoo of the whole the whole thing and, and for me that's when the writing goes fast you know that that's when i can sit there and I can go out to my shack at eight in the morning and I can, I can look up and I, and I say, when did it get dark? Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, well, that's why I t- uh, that Barry Hanna quote about exploring the questions of, you know, the human soul. Like, as a writer, you're trying to ask questions. And I heard, like, the Harry Cruz line, a great writer from South Georgia, said, like, if you have all the answers, you should write religious tracts. Exactly. If you're looking for the answers, then you, you write fiction.
1: No, and it's, it's something that people, um, you know, with a book like this, um, sometimes w- want answers, Right. Um, but it is, fiction asks the questions. Milan Kundera said that what, what novels do is teach us to comprehend the world as a question. And I think that is absolutely, you know, what we do. And I think what fiction does is it takes all our questions about life and it deepens them and broadens them. And then, you know, the, the great line from Charles Johnson is in, it tabernacles them in flesh, right? We attach all these existential questions to these fictional characters. And follow their, you know, follow their progression through these questions. Yeah,
0: I got distracted by the little league team that just sprinted through in the back there. <laughs> um, <laughs> any other questions? Maybe? Yes. All right. Um, did is there any personal um,
2: connection with Afghanistan for you? No, not for me. Or your family?
1: No. Um, I did do a lot of um, reporting for this novel. Ah. This was an interesting sort of writing process because because I was writing as journalism. Um, I, I sort of went out and reported it as journalism but instead of asking people as you do as a journalist you know what happened it was the question is what would happen what could happen if this. so um, you know for um, you know for so much of it it was you know it was all reported out so that you know as far as I was able to um uh to to check that mm. everything you know that happened in Afghanistan was as accurate as it as it could be for fiction. Yeah. yeah. M-
0: my first thought when I when you started talking was when you said that he stood up. He was in a- he had yeah. been in Afghanistan and
2: uh, when he stood up, that I said to myself, "Oh, so Afghanistan never happened," and that was where I took that. So I was writing my own book.
1: Ah, okay. While you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We have time for maybe one or two more questions. So actually one in the back there. Okay. Yes, sir. Do you think that you could make the same kind of exploration with nonfiction as fiction? Because some people have written wonderful nonfiction that reads almost as excitingly or incisively as fiction
1: i I've spent um much of my career um, writing nonfictions, journalists, just not book length nonfiction. Um so yeah, I enjoy I enjoy reporting. I still keep a, a little toe in it, um, you know, only because I I use it. I mean the fiction writer in me has always sort of been the parasite to the journalist, you know, and I'm always stealing bits and pieces. The fiction writer is always stealing bits and pieces from the journalism. But certainly, um for nonfiction, it's just my heart tends to be and that's why I started writing goes to fiction. You know? Um because with nonfiction, it's it's almost a different brain, and it doesn't give you that sort of dizziness for me that fiction does. Because in fiction, you know, in 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 nonfiction, you get to describe the universe. In fiction, you get to invent it.
0: Yeah. All right, we've yeah, got right. time for like two. <laughs> right? Quick, more. We'll do right here, and then in, the, in the back, yeah. we'll finish you in the back. Right there, she yeah. wanted right there. Right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I also attended the book club discussion Monday night, and I. This was the first time I've read a book with this writing style, and you identified it something narrative nonfiction or something. You used a phrase that yeah,
1: narrative nonfiction is narrative what, yeah, nonfiction. creative nonfiction, or yeah, yeah. A lot of-
2: and um, the question was, how many believed it, how many? And I, I thought at the end of the book, I got to the end, I said, I wonder how the author feels. That he did he feel does he feel good that he pulled one over on people? Because a lot of people. But then, but then you answered that question. You said you have some glee and some guilt. guilt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I thought you should be gleeful, but I understand your guilt because <laughs> if people had to think about it, and I was one of the people, I said I had to read, go to the back to the cover. This is a novel. Uh, read, read, read. Oh, this is a novel. This is novel. so I had to keep reminding myself, but it was so well well written that I thought that okay. It took me a while to get into the book, frankly. Okay, okay. But then by the, when I did get into it, I. I was it was a good book thank you very exactly. much i read it thank and you. I, I, it was, it was yeah. well done i do All feel like i should
1: apologize to you for <laughs> pulling the wool but <laughs> yeah. one more but question in the back yeah. there
2: hello uh i've been working on a memoir for about 15 years <laughs> and um i wanted to know how do in short how do you get published and know that you can trust the person that is seeking your story as being one that is a trustworthy per- person because years ago the information came out where people were stealing other people's work yeah. and I, I'm afraid of giving up my baby yeah um, so
1: the the first question how to get published is way too long you know uh, um, the answer to that is way too long to give now except to just keep going um, and and keep writing and and putting it in the hands of people. So uh, here's the advice I'll give you. Anyone who charges you or asks for money to mm-hmm. read your work, yeah. no, there, there, that, that, never do that. Thank you. So that's your basic, you know, your basic rule. Um, writing shouldn't cost you anything. Okay. Um, and as far as you know, uh, somebody copying work, that really, you know, very rare instances will that happen and in this modern computer age you always have, have proof of of what happened so i wouldn't i wouldn't be i wouldn't be scared of that um as long as nobody's asking for money to read your work you know, to agent or to publish then you're fine um because the idea is that you know they will profit off your work in the same way you will um if they're legitimate um and the key is persistence you will get a lot of rejections. Your skin has to be so thick. With memoirs, it's especially hard because you're not—it's your life, you know. So you're, the rejections—not just of your writing, it's of, of your, your being. So that's that's even harder. And uh, and I can't do that. So I admire you for writing that. Um, but just don't don't give up. And is is really the key. You.
0: You know, that's um, a great question. I once had a novel I was mailing years ago, and it got lost in the mail. And first I worried, like, hey, maybe somebody's going to steal it and get it published. And I thought, well, if they do, I'm going to get a good attorney, sue them, and then it'll get all the publicity for somebody stealing a novel. So maybe I've always hoped people would steal my work. That's a that's a great sign <laughs> if people are stealing your work. So I wouldn't worry about that. But don't pay anybody. He's absolutely right.
1: And also don't worry about it that, you know, um, that he waited this long. You know, was it Ezra Pound said, literature is news that stays news. Okay, so, yeah. Good, thank you. Yeah. All
0: right. Thank you so much, uh, Jonathan, for coming. Thanks Thank, for you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. In coming months, I plan to put together a podcast about Larry Brown that will feature Jonathan Miles. We'll talk more about Tiny Love, Brown's uh, Complete Stories collection that will be out at the end of November. Uh, and if you have questions or comments, please visit writerslatitude.com and find my Facebook and Twitter handles there and send me a note. It'd be great to hear from you. Hope you'll join me again for the next edition of Writers Latitude.